Usually at this uh, point we have our scripture lesson, but in lieu of time, um, I told uh, June, I asked her, she always does a great job, I asked her if she wouldn't mind standing down, and I covered in the sermon, since I know that's part of what I'm going to do today, um, and she was gracious and, uh, and said she would, um, so we're going we're gonna to cover that. Um, today we're going to pretty much be in Luke chapter 22, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open those and you can... Um, spend some time with me in Luke, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's in the New Testament where our disciple Bible study is. Thankfully, we are right now. Um, we have we've made it the halfway point in disciple Bible study. That means they've been with me for what seventeen plus weeks, and a long time. Um, and so they're having a good time, and, and we're having a, a great time getting into the Word of God. And so, if you'll turn there. Um, that would be great. Okay. Um, today, it was interesting because uh, um, I didn't plan it that way, but I guess God did. The, um, we talked, they talked a little bit about the disciples. Uh, and, and I've always been amazed. We've been doing this like series for the last couple of weeks called Encounters, um, Close Encounters. And just talking about different people who encountered Jesus. And it completely changed their life, um, their, their lives. And in doing so, um, we've talked about a number of different people. And I thought, um, this week I want to talk about the disciples. Because they're like, they're like important people. You know, we, talk, we put them up in stained glass in churches that have stained glass. Um, so much of the Bible contains them, particularly in the New Testament. And they're just really important. And, um, and so I just thought it was really interesting. And as I was looking at the scripture lesson that's printed in your bulletin from Matthew chapter 4... I, I looked and I just revisited this story, and I just began to think a lot about people who follow Jesus and then people who also fall away from Jesus. Look at what it says here in Matthew chapter 4. It says, um, you can see right here in your bulletin, um, and it's uh, also here. Um, here we have Jesus calling these disciples. He calls them to him. And look at what it says here. It says, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come now, fo- come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. That has always just amazed me. I mean, I, I wonder if they just didn't like their jobs or what, um, where they, you know, decided that they never wanted to go home again, and then all of a sudden, this guy comes along and says, hey, drop your nets and follow me, and they're like, hey, sure, no problem. Imagine if, some, imagine if Jesus came to your work yet, uh, tomorrow and said, hey, stop what you're doing, follow me. And we just said, okay, no problem, see you later. I mean, I just find it to be amazing. After everything else I know about the disciples, that where they're always kind of like, you know, eh, I don't know, Lord, and they, they doubt him here and there. Here they just throw their whole livelihood away and decide to just go follow Jesus. And it's always amazed me at that point how powerful and strong they were in following Jesus. But as I looked at this, I saw something that Jesus says here, and you can see it printed in your bulletin, where in, in that first section of chapter 4, verse uh, eight, 19 through 20, Jesus said, come follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. And at once they left their nets and followed him. What I found out is Jesus does, one, does two things. Number one, he calls disciples to follow him. And number two, he then calls them to lead. 
Did you realize that? He gave them two things at once. Follow and lead. Anybody ever played follow the leader? How many of you are good at it? If not, I'll do it right now. Okay. Um, but what would you do with follow the leader? Just, you just, isn't that great? We, isn't it, you can tell that was pre-electronic uh, game stage where you just walk around and follow somebody and, you know, kind of walk behind them. Now we'd be like, no, I'm working on my iPad. I'll go ahead and do it. Um, but you just follow somebody around and somebody self-proclaims themselves a leader and they just go ahead and everybody follows them around. Isn't that kind of odd? Um, but, you know, when we look at our culture, what does our culture appreciate more? Do they appreciate people who follow or lead? What do you think? How many believe that they, they like leaders better than followers? Raise your hand. We like that. But, you know, if everybody's a leader, nobody can go anywhere. But Jesus called the disciples to first follow him, and then they would be leading other people to him. And as I began looking at this, there were two disciples that really stood out to me. And they have something very strong in common. And there's these two, Judas and Peter, or Simon, Simon Peter. Um, very important people. When, when we think of Judas, what do we think of? Betrayal. How many of you have ever named your kid Judas? Mine's Judah, but some people call him Judas. And I was like, no, nah, I don't think I'd do that. You know, it's like I my kid Adolf Hitler. Um, you know, or Benedict Arnold. That's one of the kind of things that we have. But Judas, and, and then we have a lot of people who are named Peter or, or Simon in, in, in our lives. And it's really interesting because both of them have same character flaws when we begin to look at this. They both were called to follow Jesus, but they both denied Jesus. When I say Peter, most of us don't say denial. Gnosis don't say, no, we'll go, depending upon our, our denominational background, many of us will say the first pope, if we have a Catholic background. Others of us will say the rock which Jesus built his church on, the one who walked on water. We don't say the one who cursed out Jesus three times in his deepest hour of need. Why is that? Well, what we see with Peter and, and Judas is they turned on their friend. Now, let me ask you this question. How many of you have ever had friends turn on you or just friends mess with you or let you down at one point? Anybody ever had that? I got to tell you, I was think, when I was thinking about this sermon today, I was thinking about my time in seminary. And I had some really good friends. As a matter of fact, this week I got to see one of them. He's a good friend of mine. And, um, but there was these two other friends that I was really close to all the way through. And we, we like to play jokes on each other. So there's this one time, they stayed at, um, at, they would stay three days at the seminary, and then they would go home and serve their churches and come back in three days. So they had a lot of downtime. And Gary and Howard are their names, two of my good, really good friends. And one time, I was sitting there, it was my first or second semester, and I got, we had, each had a mailbox there. And I got this letter from the Eastern Seminary Ladies Auxiliary. And in there it said, congratulations, Reverend Cohen, you have received an award from the seminary um, for the Passant Day Award. It, he was a philanthropist and blah, 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 and it was on letterhead and everything. And so I was like, wow, I got free money. 
So I was excited. Anybody like that when somebody gets stuff? Did you feel good? And there was another couple people who got this. And my friends were like, well, we didn't get anything. That's not, well, one of them got it. And they're like, well, this isn't fair. I didn't get it. Why did you get it? You know, they're going through all this. So I, I kind of felt bad for them. And I'm going. I go home, tell Melissa. I said, look at this. You're never going to believe this. Look at this. Well, I had another friend who saw how excited I was. And she calls me later that day and says, I got to tell you something. She said, Gary and Howard were bored one night, and they went walking around the seminary, and they found ladies' auxiliary stationery. And it's all a farce. So, you know, I, I wanted to do just like everybody else wanted to do. I wanted to choke them, you know, at that moment. So I decided now to turn the tables on them. So I called my friend Gary, and I said, Gary, I just got to tell you. I was talking to him about some other stuff. I, asked, I acted like I was asking something about class, and I said, hey, I got to tell you something. I am so thrilled, so thrilled that I, I got this scholarship award because Melissa lost her job, and... You know, we've got a kid. Uh, I think we uh, had a kid on the way or a kid on the way. And I said, um, you know, that's really going to come in handy. And he goes, Jack. And I said, what? Isn't in God good? I threw God in there on it. You know, you throw God in on it, you really turn the screws on. And he's like, Jack, are you serious? I said, yeah. Isn't it awesome how God works in your life? And he's like, Jack. Really? Are you, are you serious? He must have said, Jack, are you serious? 50,000 times. And I said, no, I'm not serious, you jerk. If I could get my hands on you, I'd choke you. And, you know, we went through this. So then he put me up to acting like I was mad at the other one, and I didn't talk to him for a day, and he was really apologetic. It was the greatest thing we did, and we just played jokes on each other. But, you know, that, wasn't that evil? And I was cleaning out my basement one, um, about a year ago, and I looked, and I found that thing, and I still kept it somewhere. I tried to find it today. But it was, it was hilarious, and when I think about this, guys I think about how God placed them in my lives for to have somebody who helped me through some difficult times in my life but also who helped me have a lot of fun and and we always had to get one over on each other always had to work something out and uh I look at that anybody have friends like that in your life so I I like to refer to them as Judas and Peter um as they turned on me in life but you know when I look about that in life one of the things I recognize is no matter how bad I've really been wronged in life, I never had to deal with what Jesus had to deal with, ever in my life. And as I look at that, here you have Peter and Judas, some of his closest friends, who turned on him in his deepest hour and deepest moment of need. Why did they do this at this point? And I begin to say, you know, I do the same thing to God. There are uh, we, I all act in one way, in one place, or you may join me in this, and I'm some way in another place. And then his, when the Lord's name's taken in vain, I just kind of go by and don't want to deal with the conflict that comes with that. And I just let him down all the time. You know, we wake up, and you know, one day we, we go through this, and one day we wake up and we're just not as close to Jesus as we once were. Anybody ever had that feeling in your life before? And it, what ends up happening is we pick up the Bible. Where is it? I can't even find mine. See? Um, we pick up our Bible and we start reading. And it's like we're reading you know, Chinese lettering. It just doesn't say anything. We don't have any connection with it. We start to pray. And uh, as we start to pray, our mind starts to go all over the place. It's like a, it's, our prayer is like either non-existent or like a hummingbird. You ever seen a hummingbird? And you're like... And you're praying and your mind's just shooting all over the place. Anybody ever fallen asleep when you pray? Okay. 
You see, it's, some of us may not even have any desire to be part of the fellowship called the church. And we just can't drag ourselves out of bed to be part of the ministry of church. If you're not alone, you're not alone in that, though. I've had those moments in my life, and you have too. And here's one of the things that we can find confidence in, but not stay there. If Peter, Simon Peter, one of the inner couple of disciples, the inner group, can fall away, guess what? So can you and I. So I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 62. Luke 22, if you have your Bibles with you. Um, and we'll have, we'll have some things on here. Um, I want to set the, the table for you here. Um, here we have, beginning at the Last Supper part here. And here's what we read. Jesus starts this by saying, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you all, uh, sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. What is this all about? Uh, this is not the first time. This is in the Old Testament. but I mean, this is in the New Testament. But this isn't the first time this has happened. If you go to the book of Job, those of you in Disciple, we were in the book of Job, right? Correct? Some people in Disciple. And in the book of Job... Satan asked God to do this, to test Job. And so what, what we have here is we have this point where sifting, anybody ever had flour that looks good at the top and then you sift it and you find those little worms and bugs in it? Anybody ever had that? Nobody's ever done that? You don't leave yours out. Who's had that done? Am I the only person with buggy flour? Okay. Um, and, but what you do, you sift through things, even at the beach, sifting through sand, you sift through things to find out what's in there and what it's made of, whether it's pure or not. And, and Jesus says, um, sift you as wheat, wheat and chaff, separating it to find out what you're made from. And so he said, you know, Simon, the devil's asked me to see what you're made of. And listen to this awesome uh, response. He says, But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and even death. What we want to talk about is how does one fall away from God? How do we fall away from God? Well, first of all, we got to recognize the first thing that happens as someone falls away from God is our confidence becomes disgenerous, disingenuous. Look at this. Or deceptive. In verse 33, he says, but Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison or death. He says, hey, Satan is asking. Now, Satan, how many believe Satan has power? Anybody? Okay. How many believe that Satan has authority? Okay. Uh, A lot of us aren't quite sure. He is allowed to have those things. God has the ultimate authority, but he's allowed for a time to do that. But a lot of times we'll say, my faith is so good. Come on, Satan, let's go. And when we say that, we don't really know what we're asking for, do we? Because when God, God may just say, okay, I'll give you permission to see what Jack is made out of. And that's when the sifting begins. It's not like God's having a big, fun match up there saying, go ahead. It's testing produces lots of kind of things in us and finds out what we're made of. Self-confidence is good, but overconfidence and overestimation of our faith can leave us in bad predicaments. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 has a great verse. It says, so you think you're standing firm. Be careful you don't fall. 
we've all heard pride becomes a comes before a fall. Our disingenuous kind of kind of thing here. Here's Simon Peter who says, "Hey, psh, all these other ones are going to fall away, but me, I'm going to stay with you." He was secure of his faith, but he was he wasn't so secure as he was overly braggart about who he was. The next thing that we find out is after our confidence um, becomes a little disgenuous, is our prayer becomes distracted. Uh, the, the, the scene shifts here as we go on uh, a little bit further here. And they've gone on to the Mount of Olives, which is an area where the Garden of Gethsemane is. Garden of Gethsemane is a place with olive trees. Um, when we've been to Israel, and I know Jeannie's I've um, been talking with some people trying to work up a trip if anybody's interested. Um, and I know some here have been there. When we're th- there, we are in Garden of Gethsemane where there are 2,000-year-old uh, uh, olive trees right in the area. And these are trees that would have been there when Jesus had prayed and when his disciples were there at this moment. It's pretty awe-inspiring and awesome. Huh? huh? Oh, no, De- Debbie's messing with me. They taste good because I kind of set her up. And there was an olive there. And I said, oh, I tried it. And it was horrible. And I said, here, taste this. Because they, they need salt and stuff. She tasted it. And it bleached her fingers. I mean, made her fingers purple. And we spit it out. It was great. So I did that to everybody. So they, they didn't like me either. Um, but have you, as you're, who, how many of you, I've asked this before. How many of you have ever become distracted in your prayer life? You know, I mean, just like you're, you start praying. And you're just like, woo, over here. Or it might be like you're going to communion and you're standing in line and something happens and you're just like, wonder what I'm going to do today. Oh, oh, body of our Lord, thank you. And we just kind of go, I better kneel and pray because you know, that's what we're supposed to do. Okay, you know, We just get distracted or we're praying for somebody and we're just like, uh, and then, then like, you know what used to drive me crazy were like those, like those little car, those things on Sunday, Saturday morning that would be like conjunction, junction. What? You ever been praying and all of a sudden, conjunction, junction, what? And you're like, where'd that come from? You know, I mean, you're just, you're, you're praying about, heal. God, just heal this person. I'm praying for you, dude. You know, what's that function? Uh, you know, it's just, it messes with you. You know, I'm hooking up verbs and cars and all that kind of stuff. Uh, it's the oddest thing that ever. Or a cartoon, give me back that filet of fish. You know, you may say, Lord, just give them back their strength, that filet of fish. Give them that fish. Whoa! And, and we just get distracted by everything around us. And, and what we find out is that when we fall away from God, our prayer life gets distracted all the more. You see, as we look here, Jesus says, it says, Jesus went out as usual. This was his place. This was his place to get alone and connect to God and to pray. And it says his disciples followed him. And on reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw from them, knelt down and prayed. And said, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. And he arose, in verse 45, he arose from prayer, went back to the disciples, and he found them asleep exhausted from sorrow. And he said, why are you sleeping? Get up and pray that you may not fall into temptation. Why did he say, why didn't he just say, get up and start praying? Why did he say, pray that you may not fall into temptation? In looking at this all the more, because when we pray, our prayer should be focused on God. 
And when we're close to God, we pray and focus on Him. When we drift off all the time, and I do it a lot in my life, whether being tired or exhausted or what, what I'm telling God is that when I'm praying, if I'm thinking about all those other things in life, except for Him, I'm honestly telling God He doesn't matter in my life. And, it, and, I, and all those times that I've been drifting away in my prayer life, I realize that there are areas in my life that I'm drifting away from Him in my life as well. That I feel a distance and dis- in, from God. And why does he say so you won't fall into temptation? Because the focus is on God. And when we focus on God, we resist temptation. A non-focus means we're moving further away. The next thing, number three. Our following becomes distant. What do I mean there? Now we switch. Jesus is arrested. And uh, Judas came up, gave him a kiss and all this kind of stuff. And then we get here to verse 54. And if we look at verse 54, it says, Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. And Peter followed at a what? Distance. He was right there with Jesus. One account in the Gospels says he even cut somebody's ear off. And then he took off. Now he is following at a distance. What we find is the one who said, one of the people who Jesus said, come follow me, is now distantly following Jesus rather than being right there with him. These are the ones who saw the miracles, who heard what he said, and yet he's following. You know, there's so many of us, day in and day out, that we want to be Christians and that our work, we're the Christian, but we don't want to be seen. We don't want to stand out as being close to Jesus in our lives. Number four, our loyalty becomes divided. Our loyalty becomes divided. What do I mean about this? When our loyalty becomes divided, let's look what happened here in 55. As he, it says, and when some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and it sat down, Peter did what? What did he do? Sat down with them. Here is the guy who was sitting with Jesus. Now he is sitting with people who wanted to hand him over to be killed. My, what a difference a couple hours have made. Am I right? Now he has gone from, Lord, I will follow you to prison or even to death. And guess that's where, where Jesus was going, to prison and eventually death. And now he has associated himself with the ones who wanted to captivate, capture him and kill him. What a difference it is made in the lives of, of Peter. This happens when we live like a double standard. The Bible, the scripture is very clear, and James talks about being a double-minded person who has one foot in the world and one foot in the church. I think the devil, the greatest tool, one of the greatest tools of Satan, besides busyness, is keeping us our foot in one place in the church and one place in the world, that we can be who we want to be, we can be churchy here, and when we leave the world, we leave Jesus here on Sunday morning with it, and we don't, we don't pay attention to him after that. If we look at the scripture in, in, uh, in Revel- the book of Revelation, it talks about a church of Laodicea. In chapter 3, it's the church of Laodicea, and God says, you are neither hot nor cold. You are lukewarm, and I want to spit you out of my mouth. What he really is saying there, Laodicea had bad water. It was kind of bitter. It wasn't cold. It wasn't hot. It was just kind of black. And he said, 
what he was, and the water actually made the people sick to their stomach. And what Jesus is actually saying to this church is, I wish you just couldn't stand me or you love me. Just both ways is making me sick to my stomach. And I find that Many of us live for outside approval in our walks and in our lives that we want to go ahead. I can tell you in my early ministry, I wanted to think about what everybody did. I wanted to think what everybody thought of me. And I remember people that would actually come out of church and would say something. I remember a lady one time, and I think I've told you this, who when I was down in Lewis, Delaware, came out and she was mad with me about something decided to tell me how many times I said like in a sermon. And I said to her, God bless you, which is a way of cursing without saying it, Right? I remember when I was a little kid standing next to my father. He was a, Jill remembers this and I know mom does. He was a guest speaker on Sunday morning, was supposed to speak that night. And he, I don't even know what he preached about. And I don't even know whether the guy knew what he preached about. But I was standing there next to him. He's shaking hands. And this guy comes out, lambasted him and said, and, and just about did everything but hit him. Am I right? And dad just smiled. Maybe he said, God bless you several times too. Maybe that's where I got it from. Um, but as he did so, he came back that night, and that man didn't, but the minister there was mortified. You know why? Because he had to deal with him every day and thought, oh my gosh, what's he going to say? I can't believe he did that to another pastor because he's done it to him several times. I used to care about that stuff, but now what we need to care about is pleasing God and not be something that is sick to his stomach, not let our loyalties be divided, but say, I want to serve you ultimately in my life. I want to live for you, Jesus, rather than the world. So that's our, la- our next one. Our loyalty becomes divided. Our next one is our faith becomes denial or diluted. As Simon Peter's sit- sitting there, he's asked several times, and in verse 57, she says, hey, this man was with him. That's him. And look at what he says in verse 57. He says, but he denied it and saying, woman, I don't know him. Now keep in mind, back at the at the Last Supper, Jesus had told Peter three times, you're going to deny me. After Peter said, everybody else is going to fall away, but I'm with you all the way. Another part of us falling away is that we reached a point where our faith becomes diluted. And you know, when you, when you put too much water in something, like for instance, I have to eat oatmeal every morning and mix it with some stuff. And if you ever put too much water in an oatmeal, it's absolutely more disgusting. It's like soup meal, and it has some things, and they just float around. They don't absorb it. They just float around in it. It's disgusting. And when we dilute something, we lessen it. And so what happens is, now he's like, eh, he lost his passion about Jesus. He lost his passion, and that led us to the next one. After our faith becomes diluted, our walk becomes disassociated. Our walk becomes disassociated. What do I mean by that? Well, let's go ahead and look at the next section in chapter 60. He's asked, he's asked. And Peter gets to the point and it says, Peter replied in verse 60. If you look in 59, it says, About an hour another asserted, Certainly this man was with him, for he's a Galilean. He said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed. And he remembered what Jesus said. And look at this, what this verse says. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter, and Peter remembered the words spoken to him before the rooster crowed. Crows today, you will disown me three times. What's going on here? 
What I believe happened, there's a courtyard there. Jesus has probably been in the prison, been questioned, been beaten, everything else. Then at this point, probably somewhere in the rooster crow between sunup and midnight and sunup. And so let's say it's split the difference, say it's about 3 a.m. He's sitting in this court. All of a sudden they're bringing Jesus from one place to the next, from the uh, prison, maybe to the Sanhedrin for trial. And as he's being brought across, Peter says, I don't know him. And Jesus looks at him in the eyes as he's being brought across. And at that moment, Peter was convicted of what happened and what he did. He had, become, he had reached a point where, Lord, I will go with you to prison or death. And then he had become to a part of, I don't even know the man. And even uh, the direct translation leads us to believe that he actually cursed him out. You see... Peter was cut to the heart and it says he wept differently. You see, Judas and Peter both denied. But what's the difference? Peter repented. In Mark's gospel, after the resurrection, it says that that when Jesus appears to the women, he says, go tell the disciples and Peter. Jesus wanted to say, you know what? I've heard your repentance and I forgive you. He wanted him to know that. So how can I come back and follow Jesus? Many of us here may be at a point where we feel this distance from God, that we were so close, and all of a sudden there's this distance that exists. Or maybe we just don't feel a connection that we once did. Or maybe life has hit us so hard that we feel so separated. Or maybe we just went away for a while just to live and do whatever we needed to do. I think the best way to do this is to look at this verse from 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. And here's what it says here. It's right in the middle of your your bulletin on your second sheet. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. How can I come back to Jesus? Number one, through what I call the 710A progression. The first part of this. Look at the natural progression from, uh, excuse me, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 7.10. It starts off in the first part of that says, and you can fill this in in your bulletin. First thing is, godly sorrow. Godly sorrow brings repentance. What is repentance? Anybody know what the word repentance actually means? Anybody from the military here? Anybody ever served in the military? Anybody know what about face means? What does it mean? Turn and go the other way, correct? Am I right with that? And if you don't, you'll find out real quick that you're headed the wrong way. Repentance means you're headed one way, turn and go the other way. So godly sorrow, the sorrow that we get, the sorrow that Peter had, caused him to, he was headed in a bad direction away from God. And at that moment, it called him to turn and head back to God. That's what repentance means. It means that we are living for ourselves and we stop and say, now I want to live for God. Wherever we are, and I want to tell you, no matter what you've done, no matter where you are in your walk with the Lord, you can always about face, and guess what's really cool? Jesus is right on your tail there with his arms open wide. Isn't that awesome? So godly sorrow brings repentance. We get convicted. What does conviction do? It means we admit that we're wrong. Is that hard for anybody to admit you're wrong? Who loves to admit they're wrong? Anybody? Anybody? Nobody loves to admit you're wrong? Of course not. Because we're always right. The rest of the world's wrong. You know, right? I've always said, if everybody thought like me, it'd be a wonderful world. 
But that's not how it is. We are wrong at times. Uh, For instance, how many of you enjoyed that blizzard this week we had? I had Melissa buy little gas tanks because our main grill's broken. So I was set for the little grill. I went and bought gas at 2 o'clock in the morning. I was ready. I went out... I went out at like 3.30, and it was slushy. I'm like, oh, yeah, here it comes. And then I saw that guy on the Weather Channel, and he's like, he's standing in D.C. with like a parka on one of those hats on going, there's nothing around him. It's drier than it is at my house. And he goes, you know, we weren't really wrong. Several miles west, they've got five feet of snow in the higher elevations. I'm like, forget you. I wanted snow. I bought bread and milk and Punch somebody to get it. You know what I mean? They were wrong, but he couldn't say, we messed messed up. We were wrong. Did you ever hear a weather person come on this week and say, we were wrong? They said, no, you see, this came in and this kept it down and this had this. And that's why, you know, I'm like, you were wrong. And it's 50 at the end of the week. And They were happy because we had a couple flakes on Friday when it said snow on Friday. Did anybody else see that one? You were wrong. Somebody please admit, I have no clue what I'm talking about when it comes to the weather. We have all kinds of things up in the sky and we're more wrong because we're trying to cram it out there before the person next to us. And every time that happens, people don't like to admit they're wrong. But we get convicted, and what conviction does, it changes our behavior. Godly sorrow brings repentance. We turn and go the other way. We're convicted, admit that we're wrong. And by admitting that we're wrong, we want to make changes in our lives. That leads to salvation. Because no matter what you've done, no matter how you've sinned, that is wiped away. I am so tired of Christian people telling me, you don't know what I've done, Jack. I don't care what you've done. And guess what? Here's Jesus. He doesn't either. Because every bit of it has been wiped away by his blood. Which leads to salvation, freeing us from regret. All the sin that we have, everything we've done, every evil thing, every nasty thing, every horrible thought. Is wiped away by the blood of Jesus when we repent and seek him. Isn't that a cool? That's only in the first section. Aren't you excited? But the second part of this is how we usually deal with things. What I call the, ten, the 710B progression. And this is worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow brings remorse. You know what remorse is? I'm concerned about me and my reputation. It's a time to cover up. We get caught. Anybody got caught doing something? Like you, don't, you know, it's worse getting caught doing something you're not supposed to do as an adult than when you were a kid. And when you get caught with that, you know what happens when you get caught? Instead of seeking forgiveness, we rationalize our behavior. I've had people come to me and say that, you know, my husband, I caught him or I caught my wife um, just watching pornography all the time. And they go ahead and they tell me, well, if you took care of my needs better, if you were more of this to me, if you did this more to me, if you did that, or you had people stealing, if I had just made more money, if you paid me more, I wouldn't have stole from the company. We rationalize our sin all the time in life. And why do we do it? Because we have to be right and our focus is on us. 
We're wor- more worried about us than how Christ looks. In this economy, it allows us to try to wrestle in our disciple and other areas. We've been wrestling with what is right to do for God. And we can rationalize all kinds of behavior and business practices and all kinds of other things and where we don't have to stand up for God. But everybody's doing it kind of mentality. So worldly sorrow brings remorse. We get caught and we go, we need to rationalize our behavior like little kids. You know what happens when little kids get caught and we say, don't do it again? What do they do? They do it again and they rationalize it. And that, when we rationalize, that brings what the scripture calls us death. Why? Because it moves us further and further and further away from Jesus. I've got to tell you something. I heard a pastor say this once, and I believe it. The problem in this world is not with those outside these walls. The problem with the world is not those outside there. The problem with this world is many in the church today... Because we're playing with God. We rationalize our behavior, and yet we live ungodly lives, and then we say, God bless me. We just want to live with one foot here and one foot there. We want to be the church of Laodicea, and then we say, God, just go ahead and bless me. Why aren't you blessing me more? There are so many abominations to God that I live with, and you live with, and we all live with, and the church lives with. We've lost a sense of shame in our world. Instead of when we fail God, because we're going to fail God. Instead of when we fail God, dropping to our knees in repentance, we stand up on our platforms and flaunt it in remorse. We say, I can do what I want because God will forgive, and that's an abomination to God. You know, another pastor, I heard him say, make this statement a, a while ago, and it just really connected with me. The world can accept sinners, but they can't stand hypocrites. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but what I want us to do as Christian people, and I want to do this for myself, I, want, I believe God wants us in this time, this is a perfect time, for us to raise the bar in our lives, no matter where we are. I'm not saying what you do. I'm not saying where you go. I'm saying we are to be salt and light. We are to be salt that gives flavor and preserves the world. We are to give light that gives light in a dark place. We're to be different from the world to show people who Jesus is. And sadly, the more I've seen in the world, the more people see the church as just a messed up, more messed up microcosm of what the world is. We need to raise the bar. And I'm not angry. I'm concerned. I'm concerned for the church. The other day, I do a philosophy of uh, religion as part of my intro to religion class. And I was asking different questions about religion and faith. And I asked people if they believed in God. And overwhelmingly, they did. Or God or a spiritual being. And then I said, how many of you pray? And you know one person in a class of 30 raised their hand. One class. And yet, when times get tough, they want God to bless them. Where are you now? The church is losing ground, and the world needs to see a difference in us. So, as I close this very quickly today, I want to ask you, remember we did a sermon on apps? Which stands for what? Application. Here's an application for you. What is your level? What is my level? Level one is this. 
come and see. And come and see equal is curiosity. What we're doing here is we're looking to belong. Some of you may be here today and said, I heard about this church. I don't know what's going on. I don't know why a church is meeting in the school. Um, all this kind of stuff. When there's plenty of I want to see what's going on here. And you're curious. Some of you may have come to the chili cook-off or you may come to some special stuff and you're just kind of feeling out. Good, keep doing that. Because I hope that you see in us that we do what we say. That we believe in who Jesus is and we live that out in our lives. And I've seen many of you do that in this church. Thank you for living those lives. So that's the first thing. Come and see and keep checking us out. Level two is where you move on a little bit more and that's come and follow. This is the commitment phase where you're ready to believe in Jesus and who he is. You're not going to follow him anymore at a distance. You wanna lit, you want, you're drawing a line in the sand Say you're saying just what Joshua did, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I believe that's you, Lord Jesus. Jesus, you are who you claim to be. That's level two. Level three is come and surrender. And that equals Conviction. Come and surrender. Conviction. Conviction means we behave differently. It's how I live and what I value in my life. It's how I live and what I value. How do I know Jesus is Lord? And how can you tell if Jesus is Lord in my life? Look at what I value in my life. What I spend my money on. What I spend my time with. Where I go. What my calendar says. Follow me around and, I'll, and we'll follow each other around. If we followed each other around, would it show that I love Jesus? That I want to go ahead and not only make a commitment, but I want to surrender my life to him and behave differently in my life. This is a major change. And I'm going to give you a point to make a major change. You ready for this major change? Serve in the church. What do I mean by serving in the church? I mean, God has given you awesome gifts and talents to use, not only for your own being, but for his glory. And right now, we are in a Sunday church, and we have some other kinds of things going on during the week. But we are coming up very soon, in just a couple months, praise God, to where we are going to have a place that we can have open 24-7, 365. How is God going to use you in order to do that? Is my question. Because guess what? There ain't enough of us on the leadership team or enough time in the world to do those things. We need God's giftedness of his people to say, I want to commit and I want to serve. Why? Because when we commit to serving, what that does is it causes us to adjust our lives. We can't control our lives then. When we commit to serve, these guys here, and spattered out, the praise team commits to serve 52 weeks a year. And that's not only morning, but that's practice during the week. Teresa, God bless her, has committed her home to us for five years. How many of you would love us to come over with all our music into your house every week? Do you think that adjusts your life? Now, I know she likes seeing me, but I don't know about the rest of them. <laughs> and sometimes we do something really crazy. We bring our kids Right, Teresa? She is so praying for this building, right? But that's the commitment from a husband and a wife together to saying, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Okay? It changes life. 
They don't just lock the door when they see us coming, although they'd like to. They commit every week of their time and effort so that we can bring it here on Sunday morning to worship God. They come in, they help set up. We have kids set up. We have people who do sound and other kinds of stuff. But there are more ways you can serve God. When we don't serve, our schedule is our schedule. We can go to church whatever time we want. We can experience it. We can pull it up. But when we serve, we're required to serve God at a certain point. It's important. Serving God will change your life. Guess what? Why pour life into the church? Because it's our only hope for the world. It doesn't matter whether the Ravens won the Super Bowl. You know how I know that? Because I remember when I started this church, the Phillies won the World Series. Guess what? It hasn't changed the world one bit. The only thing that changes the world is what Jesus gave the power to change the world, and that's the church. So serve the church. When you recognize that Jesus is Lord and gave us the power, then we take hold of it. And if we don't do it, it's not going to happen. Pour your life into the church. And level four, I could go 15, but four, here's our last one. Come and multiply. This is the commission. Be ready to be bold. Be bold in your faith. What do you do here? You reproduce your faith. You are the product of somebody reproducing their faith. Somebody shared Jesus with you because Jesus got hold of them. Because somebody got hold of them. I want to challenge you. I'm going to give you all a big time homework this week. I want you to work on reproducing your faith with one person this week. We're coming up on Easter, and and as we showed that video last week, somebody's just waiting for you to ask them. 82% of the people are just waiting for you to ask them. Just ask somebody to come to church. Let God and me work it out. And we'll work together to get them into the kingdom. Remember 10 steps across the room. What we need is to put Jesus first in our life. What I want you to do is circle the level that you believe you're at right now. And then circle again the level that you want to be at. What I believe is in our country today, we need to have a faith that is based in obedience, not one that is based in knowledge. In our world, we provide knowledge. I think it's good to have knowledge. But obedience changes the heart. Knowledge changes the mind. And where, where the heart is, that's where your treasure is, according to the world and the scripture. Right? So I challenge you today. To go ahead and be like those disciples. Not, you know, Peter messed up, but guess what? He's also the one that when he got it and repented, Jesus went ahead and ascended into heaven. And the Holy Spirit, 3,000 came into the kingdom in one, speech, in one sermon. Amen? I'm going to ask you to stand where you are. We're just going to worship the Lord. And I'm going to open up the altar. If you'd like to pray, if you're at one of those levels and you want to advance, just come and pray. And let's just worship God here today.